to Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. This podcast seeks to explore and explain various perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what I loosely and collectively call the Laws of War. If you're finding the podcast enjoyable or helpful, please do spread the word to your friends, colleagues, or students. Our guest today is Dr. Catherine O'Rourke at the Ulster University School of Law in Northern Ireland. She is Senior Lecturer in Human Rights and International Law and the Director of the Transnational Justice Institute. Her areas of expertise lie primarily in the intersections of gender, armed conflict, transnational justice, and international law. In this episode, I'm speaking with her about her very new book, Women's Rights in Armed Conflict Under International Law which is literally hot off the press. I think it was only officially published this month. And indeed, a big thanks to my own library folks and the Cambridge University Press for getting me an advanced e-copy of the book for this podcast. The book is very ambitious in its scope, and I'll say at the outset that it was very difficult to do it justice in a one-hour conversation. And upon re-listening to our conversation, I think there are some aspects of the book that perhaps got lost in the shuffle, so to speak. So let me try to make up for that a little here before we get into the conversation. At root, the book examines how different international law regimes, specifically international humanitarian law, international criminal law, international human rights law, and a series of specific UN Security Council resolutions, advance and protect women's rights in armed conflict. It examines the synergies and the conflicts among the different regimes, and it does so in both theoretical terms and in very practical terms through the lens of three specific national case studies and as well through the lens of specific emblematic violations of women's rights in armed conflict. And all of this is with an aim of assessing whether the interaction and overlapping of these regimes helps or hinders the protection of women's rights in armed conflict. Now, in our conversation, we cover much of this, but we dive right into questions that assess the relative efficacy and effectiveness of the different regimes. And it struck me after re-listening to our conversation that I did not do as good a job of drawing out some of the detail and concrete examples of how the different regimes operate to protect specific women's rights, and indeed how women's rights in the context of armed conflict are distinct and warrant special or specialized protection. So for the students out there or the general listener who may not be as familiar with one or other of the four regimes being discussed, or women's rights in armed conflict more generally, you should know that the early chapters of the book actually do a wonderful job of setting all of these more preliminary issues out. Thus, in chapter two, she provides a review of the different laws and institutions implicated in armed conflict. Chapter 3 examines the relationships among the different regimes and how they interact with women's rights more generally, while Chapter 4 digs more deeply into how women's rights and participation are treated in the different legal regimes. And all of this before launching into the three country studies and a more detailed critical analysis of how the different regimes interact in practice and to what effect for women's rights. So if the discussion that follows whets your appetite, but leaves you wanting more detail, or leaves you a little bit fuzzy regarding the specific protections each regime provides, then rest assured that the book should satisfy most of your questions. So with that, let's get into the conversation. I bring you Dr. Catherine O'Rourke. Well, Catherine O'Rourke, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for making time for this. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So, as you know, before we dive into the substance, I've been asking all of my guests to share something about themselves that's a little off the wall, a little unique, or something that your friends and colleagues might not know about you. 
you know, you already stumped me. I was really trying to uh, think about this because I have, uh, when you go through my bio, you'll see I've been at this, I've worked at the same place since I was 24. Uh, my colleagues know everything about me. I, I met my spouse there. And uh, <laughs> so, I mean, if anything, this, this question reveals that there's really nothing um, terribly exciting or interesting or uh, hidden about me. Um, I, think, I think they know everything. Well, I guess one question might be why the interest in women's rights and armed conflict? Like what brought you to this field? Sure. Well, I mean, I'm talking to you from Belfast. Uh, so these are, you know, these are issues that are still kind of very much in our kind of concern here in terms of the local context. Um, I'm originally from the Republic of Ireland near Dublin, and I moved to Belfast in 1999 to do my undergraduate degree at, at Queen's. And uh, that was the year after the peace agreement. Uh, and I was really, in many respects, I was kind of drawn, very drawn to Belfast at the time for the same things that kind of keep me here now, which is just, it is a very interesting and dynamic place around these issues of women's rights and peace building. And how that can be done inclusively and the role of law in all of that. Right. Interesting. Well, of course, we are here to talk about women's rights in armed conflict under international law and in specifically your new book titled Women's Rights in Armed Conflict Under International Law. So congratulations on, on the book, a magnificent uh, achievement. And, you. you know, the, the only problem I have, as I was mentioning uh, before we got started, is that it's, there's so much there it's a, an enormously rich uh, study that it's going to be hard to really, really do it justice in the time that we have. But I thought maybe one entry point uh, and one way to get started is that you address women's rights and arms conflict from a sort of a feminist perspective. You make reference to feminist theory in the book. Mm -hmm. And it struck me that it might be a, a good way to start is to just get you to t tell our listeners a little bit about your perspective on feminist theory and, and how it is that you think that the feminist theory lens is uh, an important one to be looking through at rights in armed conflict. Sure. Well, I mean, the book is, I, ho I hope at least, is sort of very much in the tradition of Christine Schenke and Hilary Charlesworth, that sort of foundational feminist work in international law. And that, I mean, that intervention by them initially in the early 1990s was I mean, kind of interestingly, the first time there was a real attempt to, to apply feminist theory to international law and to bring feminist insights to it. And their work was important because it really engaged in foundational aspects of international law and lawmaking problematics around the kind of what they call the public-private divide. So the concern of international law with the relationships between states and not enough of what was going on within states. The Indeed, the definition of states in terms of the control of territory, legitimate use of force. Um, so bringing that sort of foundational uh, feminist doctrine to those insights was was really very important. And I tried to locate the work in uh, the book in, in that broader work um, where feminist work in international law has the bulk of it really has gone since those initial foundational interventions has in many respects been quite concentrated on questions of conflict, uh, particularly the ways in which international law defines harm. So this is where things like thresholds, conflict thresholds under IHL become very important. Uh, the criti famous critique is that those uh, distinctions can be quite arbitrary around recognizing forms of violence against women that sort of count and are captured by IHL and those that are not. Um, they can be unduly arbitrary between violence that happens during conflict and after conflict. 
so the feminists, there's really a very developed body of work, uh, feminist literature um, on those kind of key areas, particularly around the sort of legal definition of harm um, and the extent to which it captures women's lived experience of harm. Right. Well, we'll come back to, I think, this issue of the sort of arbitrary definition of armed conflict and, and how that relates to definitions of harm and women's rights. But before we sort of dive yeah. down that rabbit hole, I think the next way we can get into this is, you know, the book really looks at the interaction, the overlapping between four separate regimes. Mm -hmm. And this podcast is at its core, really interested in the interaction between different regimes relating to armed conflict. So, you know, your book is really on all fours with this. So perhaps you can just introduce us to the four regimes and sort of your inquiry into how they interact as they relate to the rights of women. Sure. So, well, maybe just as a footnote to what I was saying about feminists work in international law, whereas Charles and Schinkin, I think, were very important in uh, establishing that initial engagement around core tenets of international law, general principles. Uh, further feminist work probably hasn't engaged quite as much, actually, with those kind of foundational concepts. And my interest in the book, I mean, the book is very is is in many ways about fragmentation and about fragmentation as a phenomenon in international law and and how we deal with it. And I was motivated by what it seemed to me was really no feminist work talking specifically about the phenomenon of fragmentation, even though fragmentation particularly in women's rights that the book talks about, a lot of that has emerged in response to feminist demands. So um, that was why I was keen to sort of um, re-engage with the kind of core concepts and foundational principles in terms of feminist work. On the more specific question then of the regimes and the choice of regimes, so this will come up, I'm sure, at some point, but I, I work at the Transitional Justice Institute at Ulster University. I, I direct right. the institute. I've been here a long time. I did my doctoral work here as well. And transitional justice is sort of an interesting uh, phenomenon in terms of international legal study because it, it's sort of defined by the fact it sort of traverses different regimes. So even even if I'm teaching this to my students, we sort of start with international human rights law because typically we define violations with reference to international human rights law. But that's of course not enough because even where states are coming up with sort of non-judicial approaches to accountability, things like truth mechanisms and reparations, they are, of course, bounded in what they can do by international criminal law and a duty to prosecute. And that and you can't really understand those aspects of international criminal law without understanding international humanitarian law and particularly around definition of war crimes. And, and then, yeah, and actually when it comes to the area of women's rights and conflict, I mean, interestingly, if we look at sort of global policy developments and initiatives by national governments uh, in the last 20 years, that's really the impetus for that has very much come from the Security Council, the UN Security Council. So that is why the book engages with those four regimes. It, it looks at international human rights law, international humanitarian law, international criminal law, and, and the UN Security Council. Right. And so in addition then to uh, analysis of the way in which these regimes interact and exploring whether those interactions are positive or negative and the ways in which they're positive and negative. You also engage in these three regional or, or country-specific case studies. So perhaps we're, we're not going to have time to, uh, unfortunately, delve into those in, in a lot of detail, but they're obviously fundamental to the project. So perhaps you can just tell us a little bit about the three country studies and, and what role they played. Sure. So they, I mean, they played, I suppose, two roles, really. 
the book is set out in three sections. So the first section is the legal and conceptual framework, and that is more a doctrinal analysis of you know key aspects of the four regimes and how they relate to each other. The middle section is the case studies, and then the final section is what I call looking forward. And the case studies were important because. I mean, the doctrinal questions are obviously very important and it is, you know, we do need to sort of know the doctrinal context. Right. But um, my interest and this, this, this relates really to the, the overall project and the, the funder. So this is the book was an output of the political settlements research program, which is funded by the Department for International Development. So they they're less interested in the doctrine and more in, in, in how they, the doctrine works out in practice in terms of different um, conflict affected settings. Right. So from an international legal perspective, what, what was of interest to me was um, what the very considerable legal and normative development on women's rights in conflict across these four regimes, what this was actually meaning in practice for how international institutions were engaging um, on women's rights in these different case studies. Um, so I look at uh, Colombia, Nepal and the DRC, and those are case studies that were, I mean, they were selected, in some sense, they were selected also related to the overall project that it's a part of. Um, so we had country partners um, in those contexts. They were also important because they offered a regional diversity, uh, which was particularly, I think, important around the human rights aspects, because whether or not there's a robust regional human rights system was, was important um, in, the, in the outcome. Right. Um, and there were also sites in which all of the institutions I was interested in had some level of engagement. So I could actually go and look and see what the, what the different institutions that were monitoring these regimes um, were doing in the country settings. And I mean, obviously I'm trying to make a doctrinal contribution in terms of uh, the regimes and their relationship, but I did also want to sort of offer something to the study of fragmentation that sort of gets us out of kind of very circular debates about hierarchies of norms, right. but actually looks in practice at how fragmentation works out in different country settings where you have a number of international institutions uh, regulating, monitoring, enforcing, overlapping norms. You know, what does that look like in practice um, when they're actually there? with the same broad normative aim to sort of enhance women's rights, but sort of how is that working out of practice? And that implementation focus, I do think is quite an important contribution of the book. Um, and for, for all sorts of, I think for understanding fragmentation, I think for understanding the case studies, I think for, for understanding what it is international institutions do on the ground in conflict settings. Right. And so I guess the, the last thing we might just flag before, just to set the table, so to speak, so to establish the landscape before we dive into some of the detail, is the final lens, if you will, that you set up uh, at the beginning of the book is this notion of emblematic violations of women's rights. And you use these emblematic violations as, as a, a lens through which to, again, look at the fragmentation and to look at the ways in which the different regimes op are operating in the, the different uh, country case studies. So perhaps you could just introduce us to those. Sure. So because certainly it was one of the sort of many challenges, I suppose, in drawing boundaries around this project was, you know, how am I going to define women's rights and what ones, and particularly given that I wanted to do case study work, what ones would I actually look at? Because, of course, it's inconceivable that I would look at them all, um, given the sort of nitty gritty country detail I wanted to do. Uh, so it's sort of inevitably I had to deal with sexual violence uh, because it has been the focus of so much of the legal and normative development. Now that was like, truthfully, that was a bit of a dilemma for me. And I have had feminist sort of commentators come back to me and challenge me on that decision because much of the critique in this area is that there's an over-focus on sexual violence, uh, that it's, uh, that the focus on sexual violence 
abstracts sexual violence from structural gender inequalities that enables it. It uh, distracts attention and resources from socioeconomic disadvantage in conflict-affected settings and, and, uh, and ultimately that it presents women as passive victims of conflict as opposed to active agents. So there is a very developed literature that I have contributed to in many ways that critiques the sort of overfocus of international law on the question of sexual violence. Nevertheless, when it came to thinking about how to structure the book, it did seem to me that I couldn't really do the sort of study I wanted to do without looking at sexual violence, given that, I mean, ultimately the book does try to tell a story of to what extent the legal and normative development has had a positive material impact on the ground in conflict settings. And I felt I couldn't really legitimately do that without looking at the violation that has been surrounded by the most, has been underpinned by the most legal and normative development. Right. Um, so that was the choice. So across the three case studies, I look at the question of sexual violence and how the how norms around the prohibition of sexual violence have been interpreted, monitored, and enforced in in these different country settings. The other and and then I what I decided to do was to look at um, from each of the case studies. Then I I pick a violation that is sort of very much associated with that conflict um, and to see the extent to which uh, the international institutions approach those violations in gender sensitive ways. And the violations I selected weren't necessarily defined by gender. So unlike sexual violence, they're not necessarily associated with um, women's rights. Nevertheless, my proposition was that if, if this project around kind of feminist engagement with international law in this area is working, we should be seeing kind of gender sensitive, gender inclusive responses to those violations too. Right. Um, so, so for that reason, I looked at, um, in the DRC, I looked at the issue of child soldiers. Um, in Colombia, I looked at um, forced displacement. And in Nepal, I looked at enforced disappearances. So again, those are the sort of violations that are, I think, very much associated with those different conflicts. All right. Well, so at the very outset, you set yourself four sort of overarching questions uh, that the book is going to address in the course of uh, examining all of the things we've already just talked about. And the first question is, is functional specialization positively serving and enhancing women's rights in conflict? So what do you conclude? And maybe we can sort of dive into the answers to that questions and how you get to, to those answers. And I think that as we do that, we're really going to pull apart the ways in which these different regimes interact either positively or negatively as it relates to women's rights. Sure. So yeah, I looked at the question of functional specialization. So the idea that these different regime, regimes have, and I, I talk about this more in the, in the concluding sections, but, but the idea that they have a sort of comparative advantage. So if we look at IHL, we've got the advantage of a focus on prevention, direct engagement with belligerent actors. Uh, human rights law brings us a focus on state accountability. International criminal law, gives us individual criminal accountability and the Security Council has unique enforcement authority. What, so the book sort of sets those out as sort of potential uh, as areas of functionalization and then tries to conclude about the extent to which they are looked, after looking at the case studies, the extent to which they deliver on those things. And I mean, I, in that sense, I mean, I think the book broadly confirms what I set out to um, my initial sort of suspicions around this in terms of functional specialization. It does probably draw out some other um, some other aspects as well, and so for example, the critique that I mentioned at the outset about the concern that um, international law is sort of quite crude about definitions of conflict related violence against women, for example, that it is it it uh, it abstracts that harm from broader context of structural inequality and it unduly distinguishes between harm during conflict and after conflict. 
I mean, I actually found that the human rights system was pretty good about not doing that, uh, that the treaty bodies were quite good. And not just CETO, but actually across the treaty bodies, there was quite a good sensitivity to the ways in which violence during conflict and after conflict was connected, the ways in which violence against women was related to broader structural inequalities. And when I looked at the treaty bodies, they were actually pretty good on those issues. And there's, there's sort of, I mean, you certainly need to read the book, but there's other examples of, of that I right. do um, draw out in terms of the sort of comparative advantages of the different regimes with an aim ideally to sort of informing uh, strategic engagement by women's organizations in settings where they require that kind of intervention. So I was struck in reading, and again, as you say, this is, you get to these conclusions in chapter eight of the book, yeah. where you're looking at the ways in which the, the different regimes interact and to what extent there's either synergies that assist or further or advance women's rights or norm conflicts or gaps that actually undermine women's rights. And I was struck by the you know, apparent comparative weakness of IHL in this analysis, right? Okay. And so okay. this being jib jab and okay. so yeah. okay. many of our listeners being jib uh, <laughs> adherents, um, this okay. is going to come as a surprise, right? That, that IHL is of the four regimes in some respects, seemingly the most wanting when it comes to either recognizing or protecting the rights of women in armed conflict. So maybe we can drill into that a little bit, particularly as it relates to or in comparison to international human rights law, which I came away from the chapter thinking was much more robust in its protection of women's rights. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's, I'm interested, actually, that you have said that that was your impression. So I'm now wondering if I should maybe go back and read it again. I because because actually that was not my intention. And um, in fact, a friend who recently read the book, who probably knows least about IHL of the four regimes, said to me that that was her, her big takeaway was she needed to engage better on IHL. And in the conclusion where I set out my feminist um toolbox for fragmentation. Right. I do say very explicitly, there needs to be better feminist engagement right. with IHL, right? And um, because of the four regimes, by far and away, it's the one with the least least feminist scholarship, least feminist engagement. Right. So, I mean, the my critique, like, frankly, I think my critique of, of IHL is, is less about IHL and probably more about the ICRC, just to be nice and controversial here. Right. So <laughs> that was my next question, is that in, in your discussion of IHL is this discussion of the ICRC, and it, it starts off quite glowing. And I, I could imagine uh, the folks in Geneva smiling as they began reading the chapter and being somewhat glum by the time they get to the end of the discussion of the ICRC. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it was, you know, they are a unique, they're a unique actor. Um, and, and, and in all of the, con the country settings, they were incredibly important in terms of their role um, engaging belligerent, their direct engagement of belligerent actors. You know, there's no one else doing it, right? I mean, there's the UNSC is kind of doing it in a very dangerous and ham-fisted way, but uh, the ICRC plays a unique role. And, and for that reason, I think that the lack of feminist engagement is particularly problematic because there, there needs to be better engagement. I mean, the, the critique of... IHL and probably the, the ICRC in particular has been um, in the book is it has been perhaps too explicit about it not being a feminist organization. Right. And it has made some pretty, in my view, problematic statements about how it views gender relations being out, you know, outside of its realm due to its impartiality. 
And I don't, to be fair, I don't know that they would say that quite so explicitly now. Nevertheless, there's a legacy of that and uh, a statement, an explicit statement to the contrary would probably be helpful. Um, I mean, my sense is that the engagement, the ICRC can also just be quite closed, I think, in terms of its engagement with, with other um, organizations. And yeah, and a lot of it is about the sort of quite technical nature of IHL. It's, you know, compared to the other regimes, it does require a sort of a level of specialist knowledge that can be exclusionary to civil society and can be exclusionary to women's organizations. And also, I think, unlike those other regimes, human rights law, drug criminal law, um, and the Security Council, there's nothing really there in terms of a commitment to women's participation. Now, fair enough, people might say that's that's outside the realm of IHL and, and you know, that's a legitimate comment. But without that, um, certainly my experience of having kind of worked in this area for a long time is that without feminist engagement with international law and women's organizations engagement with international law is always at least as much about process as it is about substance. Right. It is about the process of lawmaking, interpretation, development, and where there isn't a sort of fairly solid normative or legal basis for women's participation, you will find a lot of difficulties in terms of securing engagement. Right. So I guess I had some conceptual questions as I was reading it. And and in addition, I, I just read your blog post on oh, yeah. the commentaries on uh, Geneva Convention 3. Mm. Uh, which was actually much more yeah. favorable towards the ICRC uh, <laughs> and that they had embraced a much more robust view of women's rights in, in the most recent commentary than they had yeah. in the past. Right. But I guess one thought that struck me, and here I, I feel like I'm tiptoeing out into the minefield because uh, <laughs> it's okay. not an area that I'm <clears throat> uh, necessarily all that well-versed in and there are minds I probably am not even aware of. It struck me that for instance, when you're talking about the commentary and the ICRC's the very distinct shift in how it is viewing women's rights in the recent commentary as opposed to the previous commentary, mm-hmm. that all made seem to make sense, right? I mean, it was just a recognition right. uh, of the rights of women and the distinct needs of women or the distinct roles of women in armed conflict and changing some of the underlying sort of sexist assumptions that were were underlying the previous commentary. So that all makes sense. But then when you get to things like uh, the problem of definition of armed conflict Mm -hmm. uh, and the existence of armed conflict and the question of the adherence to, you know, the Tadich test in terms of determining Mm -hmm. whether there's a non-international armed conflict, how that might impact on women's rights, then I start to wonder how, how IHL might change in response to that critique and you know there's a there's a reason why that definition exists and why it's important to have a trigger triggering the operation of ihl and so how are we to navigate or contemplate the interface between the needs of women and 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 enforcement of women's rights on the one hand and ensuring that IHL is only triggered in certain circumstances for the purposes of achieving the objectives of IHL. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, I feel a little bit in in the book, I've sort of positioned myself unfavorably towards IHL lawyers and towards feminists. (laughs) 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 Because... (laughs) 
You're in a glass house now. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah, something like that. Um, So, I mean, mean, actually, fundamentally, I I buy into what you're saying. uh, That, but I think you also, but I have two responses. Um, The first is that a lot of the reason for I think feminist disengagement or failure to engage or unwillingness, reluctance to engage with IHL is exactly for the reason that you're getting at, which is that there is an unwillingness to concede in any way that there is legitimate use of violence in in complex settings. Okay, And that just in the way that IHL prohibits certain activities, it also makes other activities um, lawful. So I will just interrupt for just a second. That there was that I forget where it was in the book, but you you delve into this historical intellectual history, which I just thought was fascinating. So the, this idea that you know the women's movement and the feminist movement initially had just been all about outlawing war altogether, and so it is illogical for us to be engaging in a discussion about how to make war more humane when it should be outlawed altogether. So we're just going to have to be part of this, um, and I had either not known or forgotten this this history. I thought it was really very interesting. So, uh, but back to the the answer. Yeah, so so there is, a, I think it's a sort of, there is a sort of, perhaps a sort of purist kind of feminist position that says, you know, we're, we're unwilling to sort of engage with these kind of technical discussions about things like conflict thresholds, et cetera, because ultimately this this violence is illegitimate, you know? So I think that's that's an initial, I think, resistance and, that has underpinned, um, in, in my view, I think is underpinned probably a lost opportunity to engage more constructively with IHL um, on the sorts of questions that you're posing, which is, uh, you know, how might we make IHL within its current parameters and do actually what the ICRC, I think, has done very successfully with the updated commentaries. Right. Um, ensure that uh, in its application, it is being applied in ways that do enhance the rights of women to the extent feasible. But I get that. And and. As you say in, in the last chapter of the book, when and we'll t- we'll come back to the the toolbox uh, yeah. as you call it, you make this argument that feminists and and uh, feminist scholars need to engage with IHL much more, mm-hmm. and, so, and so you can see all of the ways in which that would be uh, productive and advance thinking about women's rights within the context of IHL. But just again, just to go right down into the conceptual sort of tension. And you mentioned this at the very outset of our conversation. You're talking about, you know, this notion of sort of arbitrary distinctions on over when an armed conflict comes into existence. And in the case studies, you mentioned the fact that in in particular in Nepal and Colombia, the government itself was employing these distinctions, saying, well, uh, IHL has nothing to say here because there isn't an armed conflict. And that this reliance on the so-called arbitrary distinction as to what is an armed conflict has negative ramifications for women's rights. And I totally understand how that would play out in practice and how that would impact negatively on women's rights. But I guess the question then is, but, but then what to do, right? I mean, is it feasible to try to alter the definition of armed conflict in IHL, which has much broader objectives than simply protecting women in armed conflict in order to better ensure or better protect uh, the rights of women in armed conflicts. So I'm not sure how you're thinking about how you'd reconcile that tension. Well, what the book, I mean, tries to do is by looking across the regimes is by trying to draw out the sort of comparative advantage. So, right. I mean, I don't make the case for 
redrawing these boundaries. I mean, I, to the, these boundaries are vulnerable enough, in my view, and, and through the case studies, you do see, as you say, you see the state resistance to them. But by looking at across the four regimes, my argument is that perhaps there are other regimes better equipped to, to deal with continuities between conflict-related and non-conflict violence. Um, and as I mentioned, the human rights system did much better on that question. And, and that's a place where we have a framework for state accountability and potentially reparations you know, that are more sensitive to those issues. Um, so I'm sort of, the purpose of the book really was about sort of encouraging um, engagement across the four regimes for their respective merits, uh, rather than trying to fundamentally, I think, revisit IHL, um, which seems to me not a productive project given uh, how under-challenged it is already. Right. Well, perhaps we, you know, I could stop flogging the horse of IHL for a moment. <laughs> and um, I mean, because one of the other uh, sort of impressions that I, after reading the book is the extent to which human rights really does step in to protect the rights of women in armed conflict. And, you know, one of the things that you know, we might emphasize here is that for those who question whether, you know, international human rights law has any place in armed conflict and where it operates vis-a-vis IHL, I mean, your book is a very strong answer for why it is that you have to be considering human rights law as operating uh, alongside of IHL in armed conflict. And, and so maybe we can talk a little bit about the, the human rights uh, aspect here. Sure. I mean, again, I mean, by looking at the, obviously I sort of do the kind of overview in terms of the doctrinal question around application of, of, of human rights in these times. But, but I think what's much more interesting and useful in the book is I look at the case studies and the extent to which the human, in particular the human rights treaty bodies are engaging with the different case studies during during conflict and, and after, and, and sort of the extent to which and how they engage on questions of women's rights. And um, so whilst there is, of course, that sort of important and ongoing doctrinal question around the application of human rights law, I mean, actually what the book brings out is that there are certainly ongoing efforts by the treaty bodies to engage. And even where states are poor in terms of their things like their state reporting and their periodic examinations with the treaty bodies, civil society, and human rights advocates are quite creative um, throughout these periods in using things like um, individual communications, uh, to some extent inquiry mechanisms, particularly, and really only in Nepal, I talk about the, the charter-based human rights mechanism. So I talk about the, the working group on enforced involuntary disappearances and how important that was. Right. Uh, so, I mean, whilst the doctrinal question I know is, probably, is, is of interest to people, I mean, I was much more interested in practice, actually, to right. what extent were these institutions engaging and, and what were they doing about women's rights? and Certainly, it's it's not that it was all perfect, and it's not that it was all effective, right. but it's 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 it was ongoing. Right, right. No, I was really struck by the um, you know the extent to which it really comes through in the book that the human rights regime, and not as you say, not just CEDAW, but the other treaty regimes were operating in a way that was really effective uh, and helpful, um, and and interesting the extent to which it backed up and filled in where IHL was failing. Yeah, and, and certainly just in terms of the, I mean, the point we were talking about IHL in terms of feminist engagement, I mean, the the appeal of the treaty bodies is always that they are quite accessible to civil society. And um, for many, I think for many women's organizations, they were engaging with treaty bodies, even if they weren't engaging on IHL questions. Right. Um, so that civil society space around human rights law, and particularly the treaty bodies and how they do their work, uh, was really critical, actually, in, in empowering civil society in, in a context in which they were largely disempowered. And so I, I guess the interaction, the overlapping, sort of the, the dynamics between IHL and international criminal law is much more 
uh, I think, familiar and, and uh, well known to our listeners. But we could perhaps just talk about that for a little bit. Uh, and again, I was interested to see you were quite, I think, positive in your assessment of how international criminal law at least uh, brought some accountability uh, and, and enforcement to the issue of women's rights. Yeah, I mean, I tell, I, th- I feel like I tell two stories really of international criminal law. So the in the first section where I do the more um, doctrinal discussion and, and also I, it's not only doctrinal because I do lay the table a bit in terms of broader feminist engagement with the regimes, right. with the four regimes outside of the case studies. Uh, I tell a story of sustained feminist engagement, advocacy, and a sense of feminist success with international criminal law. And, and that really kind of reaching its high watermark in 1998 with the Rome Statute and the codification of um, a number of sexual gender-based crimes. The second story, though, <laughs> which is the story of what the ICC was doing um, on the ground, both in the DRC and Colombia, um, I think I think is a more complicated picture. Right. Um, I think particularly particularly I think I conclude fairly negatively around what they were doing in the DRC. Uh, it's probably a little more equivocal in terms of Colombia. Um, and then of course in Nepal, Nepal just didn't ratify, which just kind of brings out the key weakness right, <laughs> um, right, right. in terms of the ICC. So I, th- I think it's probably a more complex tapestry. I'm, I'm interested that you thought that it was it was more positive because I I don't know that that's what I thought. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and to be fair, I mean, you, 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 there is a section where you critique the, the the failure of the ICC to have convicted anyone for sexual based crimes, and sort of there is that failure, and yet the the regime itself is set up in a way that one would be more hopeful, and then the the reality has turned out so far. Yeah, this is where I mean, in terms of the feminist literature in this area, this is where typically at this stage we're all sort of saying, well, courts were never particularly good at prosecuting sexual gender-based crimes anyway. And perhaps we were naive to think that international, an international court would be. Of course, I mean, the examples of the ad hoc tribunals, I think was also a reason for confidence. But yeah, the, the, the failings of the ICC are real and they come out uh, in the case studies in, in pretty compelling ways. Right. And then the UN Security Council is probably not one that would have been on some people's radar when thinking about the rights of women in armed conflict. And so how do, maybe you could just explain a little bit more about the UN Security Council's role and how you see, you know, that regime as interacting with the other three. Sure. That's, it's so interesting that you say that, that you think that the Security Council wouldn't be on people's radar because in the circles that I keep Right. Craig, let, let me tell you, it's the first and foremost on everybody's <laughs> radar, um, right. which, which I think says something very interesting about, and again, kind of brings out what I'm saying, which is a sort of, what well, there's the things that women's rights people do, and then there's the things that IHL lawyers do, and we seem to sort of operate in different spheres, despite um, talking about a lot of the same issues. So the Security Council, and in fact, this is timely because just last week, we right. had the 20th anniversary of uh Security Council Resolution 1325 on Women, Peace and Security, which was the first resolution adopted by the Security Council um, in this kind of broad area of women, peace and security. And the first time that they um, set up this kind of series of normative commitments around um, adopting a gender sensitive approach to their work on conflict. And in particular, 1325 emphasizes the question of women's participation in all aspects of conflict resolution and peace building. 
And since that initial resolution in 2000, we've had nine subsequent ones. So we have 10 all together. And uh, this was all in the media last week. Right. Because yes. There was, uh, it was, it was actually sort of fun to see your research area being published in mainstream newspapers, you know, right. but uh, uh, for a moment I felt mainstream, but uh, the Russia happened to be holding the Security Council presidency for the 20th anniversary of the resolution. And there's been, just to say, I mean, there's been a massive jamboree among civil society um, about this anniversary, about this 20th anniversary. And I should say, I mean, at my institute, we've had a research seminar series all year talking about it. And uh, but it was sort of unfortunate then that Russia was was uh, held the presidency because they then had this lead role in coming up with the draft resolution, an eleventh resolution on women, peace, and security, and uh, it was noteworthy for all the wrong reasons. Um, right. Essentially, civil society in particular was very unhappy with what they felt was a watering down of the commitments, and they encouraged. Uh, several of the Security Council member states to abstain, and they were successful. So ultimately, ten uh, ten member states abstained, so the resolution didn't didn't pass. So that's that's the sort of update on the recent uh, right. on the recent area. I mean, I suppose of more interest of more interest to your listeners will be the question of what it's meant for the other regimes. So it's had I mean it's had implications really for for all of the regimes. I mean, it has the Security Council in. In particular, they have set up a whole kind of system of accountability around sexual violence in armed conflict. And uh, there's a reporting mechanism, a monitoring and reporting mechanism that's uh, led by the Secretary General Special Representative on sexual violence in armed conflict. And there's an annual report on the theme to, that goes to the Security Council in every April that looks at this question of sexual violence in armed conflict. And importantly, uh, there's an annex to that report which lists perpetrators, known perpetrators of sexual violence and armed conflict. So, um, and that's then informs the security, the relevant Security Council sanctions regimes. Right. So there's fairly robust enforcement piece to this as well as everything else. And so, how did it play out, or what was your sort of analysis of the role and effectiveness of this regime in the three country studies? Yeah. Uh, it was it was certainly the most negative of all the regimes. I mean, very clearly. So what I found essentially was, and, and, I mean, others have got at this too, but uh, that whilst the, the Security Council is much more enthusiastic about adopting these kind of normative agendas, so it's not they they have one on women, peace, and security. They also have one on children and armed conflict. They have one on civilian protection. Um, the Security Council is much better about adopting those um, thematic normative resolutions than it is about actually operationalizing them through its country specific activity. Right. And this and this again was where the, the the country case studies were so important. It was um looking at how the interface between these kind of the Security Council's architecture on one piece of security was interfacing with the country with the country specific resolutions was was very thin, really very thin indeed. Interesting. Well listen, I see that we're we're running sort of short on time. And I did want to get to the, the last three sort of questions that you'd set out, as well as the toolbox. So, um, so the second question, uh, as I'm looking at it here, are, are the regimes interacting productively on women's rights in conflict or undermining advances in one regime through adverse interactions with others? So generally, what's your sort of assessment on the way the, in which these regimes are interacting as they relate to women's rights? Yeah, I mean, could could do better, I guess. Uh, could do better. Um, <laughs> um, so 
the let me just try to think of an example. Um, one of the okay, so so I suppose in, in theory, there's a the, the discussion about the relationship between international humanitarian law and international human rights law. One of the for people who advocate that sort of a closer relationship, uh, the arguments in favour are typically related to the accountability mechanism, the potential for reparations, and the civil society involvement as well. So that the human right that the human rights treaty bodies offer kind of promise on those three respects. And I, which I, which I, in theory, I thought sounded very promising. It was just when I looked in practice at the case studies, there was very little effort by the treaty bodies to engage actually with the quite more doctoral questions about IHL. So what I concluded was, well, where something is concurrently an IHL and a human rights violation, a human rights law violation, then there is promise in terms of the interaction because, you know, the, the treaty bodies were potentially drawing attention to the issue and potentially... Right informing reparations and that sort of thing. But actually I, I found it was quite underdeveloped. The the committees and um, probably IHL lawyers will be happy to hear this, but the committees were sort of reluctant enough to engage on more technical IHL questions when it came to women's rights. And that was you know, so in some sense that there may be further opportunity there and that's probably something worth developing in terms of next of uh, future work. Right. Again, then when I looked at th- thinking about international criminal law and the International Criminal Court, I mean the International Criminal Court of course um you know, includes international human rights law as one of its uh, listed sources of law in Article 21. But when I, again, when I looked in practice at that, it was having very little influence in much of the court's reasoning with the exception of any reparations jurisprudence. It was only really reparations that the court was seemed to be giving much consideration to human rights-based arguments. Hmm. And in that respect, and that's a finding, I mean, that's something others have found, it's just something I also found in, in my case studies. Um, in that respect, um, CEDAW, unfortunately, it's, it's the only human rights treaty that doesn't actually have an explicit reparations provision. Now, it's understood as, as an implied right, but it's not there explicitly, and the committee hasn't done a great deal on the question of reparations. So, uh, again, I sort of saw potential for, you know, sort of an f- opportunity there. So those are probably some of the key findings on the interactions question. Right. And then the third question also, of course, relates to this issue of the relationship among the regimes, but are are the women's rights norms under international law underpinning broadly coherent institutional activities? And so this, I guess, is more of a focus on the institutional activities within the regimes. But what what is your sort of conclusion on that score? Yeah, I mean, I found a lot of uh, norm incoherence, I would say. Right. Um, even even on like some quite fundamental questions that I probably wouldn't have expected it. And uh, so, for example, sexual violence and Nepal and the accountability norm. So at the same time as the Human Rights Committee was telling Nepal that its proposed transitional justice mechanisms were not satisfactory, they were not human rights compliant. Um, at the same time as the Human Rights Committee was telling them that, the CEDAW Committee was telling them they needed to do more to include sexual violence within the mandate of these proposed transitional justice mechanisms. And I mean, that's, that struck me as sort of problematic on a, on a number of respects. I mean, in, in other work I've done, um, I have advocated, I've advocated pretty strongly for CEDAW being a, a bigger norm actor in this, uh, in this space. Uh, but it seemed to me what this example from Nepal brought out was uh, a lack of expertise and suitable sort of expertise within the CEDAW committee on this particular question. That meant that it was then advocating whilst it was advocating women's inclusion, it was uh, violating a, a broader human rights accountability norm. Right. 
And uh, yeah, so there was sort of a need for that. And again, I think this is where the question of regime interactions does sort of the rubber hits the road on it, because we can't really expect human rights treaty bodies to be experts in international humanitarian law. And, and apparently we can't necessarily expect the specialist regime to be experts in more generous principles. So, yeah, this was a, probably a more practical obstacle to what I was sort of looking at. Right. Which leads into the fourth question, which is whether the diversification of sources creating opportunities for greater feminist influence on international law. And this relates as well to the, the final chapter, chapter nine, which where you lay out sort of very practical a toolbox, as you put it, uh, ways in which feminist advocates can become more involved and achieve practical change uh, in relation to protecting women's rights in armed conflict. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just the, the toolbox at the end, and I borrowed that toolbox idea from the International Law Commission. Um, I, hope, I hope Marty Kuskinivi won't mind. Uh, <laughs> the, the toolbox idea, I suppose, I mean, it does attempt to engage with, you know, having made a fairly realistic, I, I think a realistic and very sort of evidence-based assessment of, of what was going on in terms of the four regimes and, and the relationships to each other was to make a proposal very much from an, an advocate perspective, an activist perspective about how you might maximize the regimes and the relationship between them. And the four, the, the principles are regi uh, regime complementarity. So again, the idea that you would maximize each regime for its particular comparative advantage, Right. that you would uh, pursue norm alignment. That's where you really push each regime, you hold it to account on, at, at a very minimum, you hold it to account on its own gender equality commitments and obligations. Um, and this, again, the Security Council is a good example of that. So it is that sort of question of the Security Council should be held to account on its own normative commitments on, on women, peace and security. Right. There, there are other examples too, but that was the most obvious one. Um, norm reinforcement, the idea that where you have a positive norm uh, progressively articulated around women's rights, that you would look to have that norm reinforced in other regimes. So if it's positively coming out of, for example, human rights law or the international criminal law or whatever, that you would then try to have it reinforced strategically. through. You'd use the interactions to reinforce that norm progressively. And, um, and then finally, the question of, of what, I, what I call fruitful diversity, so it is, it is a challenge. I mean, the book is, you know, is very much motivated by the kind of proliferation of instruments and norms that we now deal with when it comes to women's rights and armed conflict. And that's a situation I think we couldn't have foreseen 30 years ago, but it presents its own challenges. Right. And um, so the idea of fruitful diversity was that, um, well, particularly, I think, where, uh, I looked, again, I started looking in the book, I found that there were kind of two important sources for more progressive articulation of women's rights norms. Um, one of them was what I call feminist insiders. So those are sort of uh, feminist actors within international law and institutions. And here, I sort of like, CEDAW obviously being the sort of example par excellence of feminist insiders, but also there's, a, there's an example of very important dissent uh, within Lubanga, that's you know quite an important feminist insider movement. You know, Fatma Masuda and others. Those sort of those sort of feminist insiders were quite important in laying the seeds of important gender equality norms. Um, and the other source of um, progressive gender equality norms that I found was civil society. And uh, this is sort of interesting from an international uh, lawyer's perspective, because of course you know these folks aren't supposed to be making international <laughs> law. Right. Um, but I found sort of lots of interesting examples. And a good one is, um, again, on the reparations question at the ICC, 
So I mentioned that CEDAW isn't great on reparations, not least because it lacks an explicit provision on it. But the, a bunch of civil society organizations got together um, and came up with this Nairobi Declaration on the Rights of Women and Girls to, um, to Reparations. And that Nairobi Declaration is all over ICC reparations jurisprudence. Um, it's very, very interesting. So we can certainly argue that it's been given indirect legal effect, and it tends to get cited in the same way that you know, the basic principles and on, on uh, basic guidelines on, on reparations get cited. So, and there was you know, there were there were other examples I found of sort of civil society initiatives that ended up being quite important in in informing international law that I looked at. Um, so I, I do sort of advocate the power of a good idea, and where there isn't a feminist articulation of a norm, there is a there is potential in terms of civil society developing um, statements of norms as they would wish to see them. And then by using the other toolbox tools, you know, regime complementarity, norm alignment, norm reinforcement, developing a sort of indirect legal effect uh, to those norms. And in order to, you know, always the book, the book, there's, there's a theme of participation through the book and, and uh, the conclusion, the toolbox is very much then about trying to enable that sort of ongoing participation um, at all levels of international law. Right. Uh, fascinating. So at the end of the day, I guess if I were to force you to sort of in, in two sentences, sum it all up, is oh the, the, <laughs> the interaction of these regimes is a positive thing for women's rights in armed conflict or not? It's no, it, it is. It is. I mean, it, it is. I mean, I'm, I'm actually I'm unequivocal about that. It is. It's it's uh, it is more positive. It has created more opportunities for strategic engagement. The book really tries to set out a way to do all that better and to really kind of maximize the opportunities. First of all, is to recognize the opportunities and then to maximize them. Right. Well, you know, I really don't think we've we've managed to do the book justice. I hope, though, that it will certainly encourage listeners to run out and get it. I mean, it is an incredibly rich study. Uh, I think, as you've explained, valuable for a whole host of different reasons. So even if you're not a feminist advocate who needs the toolbox, just the doctrinal uh, aspects of the book uh, are really rich and illuminating. I mean, I learned a great deal from it. So so thanks for the contribution to scholarship with the book, and thank you for making time. But before I let you run away, I'm going to ask you to recommend three other readings <laughs> to, three other readings. to our listeners um, that may or may not be related to women's rights necessarily, but that is, of course, your, your area of focus. So what do you suggest that we should read? What do I suggest? So I am going to suggest really anything by Judith Gardam. So one of my themes uh, today was the lack of feminist engagement with IHL. And I think she has plowed a sort of lonely but incredibly important furrow in terms of actually doing feminist work in IHL. And, and I, oddly, I sort of think maybe her work gets read more by IHL lawyers than it does by feminists. But uh, I'm just going to advocate everybody to go read everything she's written <laughs> um, for a number of decades. And, um, then, and finally, uh, just a book that I read more recently. So I, th I think I, I mentioned also at the start that uh, I tried to locate my book within the Charles Worth and Chinkin tradition. Right. And how, but much feminist work hasn't, I think, done that. It's, it's been more engaged on more specific questions around conflict. But the book that definitely is an exception to that is Gina Heathcote's book from 2018, which is Feminist Dialogues on International Law, um, published by Oxford University Press in 2018. I feel that it's, um, I have a book review coming out shortly in Agile um, on the book. 
um, I sort of feel it probably hasn't got picked up in the way it should have, um, but it's just an incredibly rich and important, I mean, frankly, the most important feminist work in international law in quite a long time. So for those of you who are interested, uh, I would encourage you to, to Gina Heathcote's uh, book, Feminist Dialogues in International Law. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you. And thank you so much for making time and, and uh, you know, helping us sort of understand the book. And thank you for the contribution to scholarship. As I said, it's a, it's a wonderful one. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's been uh, great fun to talk about the book and, uh, and also to have the opportunity to bring it to a bigger audience. So thank you. Well, thank you and, and stay safe. Yeah, indeed. Likewise. Yeah. Take care. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. You can find links to the material discussed today on our website at jibjabpodcast.com. And note that there is a page with all of the reading recommendations to date, which is growing into an impressive list of coming holiday reading. And again, if you have any comments, feedback, suggestions, critiques, please do send me an email. My contact info is also on the website. And if you're enjoying the podcast or finding it helpful, please do spread the word. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or mention it in your blog posts. And do tell your friends, colleagues, or students all about it. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter at at JibJabPodcast for updates on the coming episodes. This podcast is produced and edited by me, Craig Martin. The opening music is by Dream Machine, used on a Creative Commons license. Until next time, take care and stay safe.